The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I suggest, Logan, we remove ourselves from this vicinity. I get very bad vibrations out here. So there really is no rebellion? Not yet, at least. History has a way of timing its fights for freedom. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 30th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today, where we are pleased to be joined by fellow of the True North Initiative, Andrew Lawton. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Good to be with you. A lot of changes since we last spoke to you. (laughs) Yes, quite a few. Yes, and we'll be talking about them right after we remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. Well, Andrew, the big news this week was the resignation of Maxime Bernier. Yeah, I mean, this was a this is a bombshell, isn't it? That Maxime Bernier has dropped out of the federal. Conservative Party of Canada of, of Canada, and um, we do have a large international audience, Bob. Yes. So this show is going to be about Canadian politics, right. folks. And this is a bombshell to Canadians because everybody is suggesting now that his absence from the Conservative Party of Canada might lead to a re-election of the Trudeau Liberals. Um, do you share that that viewpoint, or do you think there's some kind of huge change coming on the political scene in Canada? I think a lot of the answer to that will depend on what happens in the next three, four, five months. And and the big criterion that I would hold up here is whether Maxime Bernier can show that his party is more than just Maxime Bernier. Because if people are seeing everyone in the Conservative Party stay in the Conservative Party and Maxime Bernier really is an army of one, then he, he's going to be nothing. He's going to be a, a pundit. If he can actually peel off support and not just voters and and grassroots members, but actually peel off people to be the standard bearers of his party alongside him, then he can actually show himself as a credible force. But, you know, in the immediate aftermath, you had nothing but condemnations from the conservative establishment, including Stephen Harper, who's still got a a fairly godlike status among the Conservative Party of Canada faithful. And when Stephen Harper's condemning Maxime Bernier, Jason Kenney's condemning, caucus members are lining up, even people who backed Maxime in the leadership, it's going to be a challenge for him to show that this is more than just me. And that's, from a strategic perspective, what he needs to do. Don't you think Bernier would have considered all of those factors before he made a move like this? Maybe he's already got his army lined up behind him before he went ahead to make a decision well, of you know, this I nature. Wonder, well, I wonder whether or not Andrew is responding to Andrew Shear's press conference immediately held right after um, Bernier's because Scheer made it an ego thing. Scheer made it a, a Maxime Bernier thing. And But if you listen to Maxime Bernier's half-hour press conference on his resignation from the Conservative Party, 
It was not about him. It was all about ideas. Absolutely. And he, dri- he drilled that home to the press that it's all about ideas. And he says he rejects the leadership question. He says, this is about ideas and doing what's best for Canada. And yet Cher came out 30 minutes later and basically said, this is all about Max's ego. Yes. And I disagree with that. No, I, there's, I, there's, there's, listen, every politician has a huge ego. There's no doubt about that. Andrew Shears is probably a lot bigger than Maxime Bernier's. I agree that that was how Andrew Shear tried to frame it, but I, I think that's also what Bernier is going to be up against regardless, because when he is going and, and selling this, it, it can't sound like his entire movement is just built on pettiness. It can't sound like it's built to oppose the Conservative Party. It has to be a, a vessel itself for Conservative ideas. And that's where supply management is a great one, because this is something that there's no economic defense for. There's no one I've ever met in my life who defends supply management who isn't either a politician or a dairy farmer. And Bernier has chosen to make that, in, in many ways, his hill to die on. The issue Bernier quitting, or is the issue him starting a I new party? I think it's him starting a new party. Absolutely. You, you can quit mm. quietly. When you start a new party, you're trying to take a flamethrower to the people whose legions you just left. But in expressing their fear against that new party, quote-unquote, aren't those expressing that fear also revealing the fact that, hey, this could be a significant thing? Absolutely. If it's significant enough to cause a loss for the Conservative Party in an election, might it not also be significant enough to cause a win for a new Maxime Bernier party? Or even what would happen if his party garnered more votes than the Conservatives, yet they still lost and the Liberals won? That would be an interesting situation that yeah, you come out not, of, right? I mean, for, for Bernier's party in this case, I would say that a win is not the only win. I'd say that being a spoiler is also a win. Yes. Because his argument was, and I'm not saying I share it, his argument was that Andrew Scheer as Prime Minister would be just a more moderate version of, of what Justin Trudeau is doing, not a ringing endorsement. But the thing that I, I think people need to understand here is that when... Bernier gets up there and says, look, I'm going to launch this party. I'm going to call Elections Canada myself, which I really like, and find out, you know, what we need to do. When he says that, he's actually starting something here that the Conservatives should not just write off. They're trying to write it off. They're trying to say, yeah, that's just that guy, as as, uh, Robert was saying, that's just ego or whatever. But he needs to show, yes, this is real. Yes, this is legitimate. We know two things. Number one, he's got huge fundraising potential. He is a fundraising machine. He's got major support in Alberta and Quebec. They call him the Albertan Quebecer. The yeah, the Quebecer from the Albertan from Quebec, yes. Oh. And the Quebec side is great because the Conservatives have no foothold there. And the Alberta side is great because the Conservative vote is strong enough in Alberta that oftentimes it could be split and still one of the Conservative splitters could win. So I'm not saying that he's a write-off. The question is whether he can actually accomplish what it is that he's setting out to do. And I'm all for challenging a party that's lost his way. We saw that when the Reform and the Alliance challenged the PCs in Canada. We saw it when the Wild Rose challenged the Alberta PCs. But the end of the story is that those parties reunited. The Conservative Party of Canada formed, and Stephen Harper won three elections in a row. Then the uh, United Conservative Party formed, and Jason Kenney is probably headed towards a, a coronation next year. And the question is whether the Conservative Party of Canada, which is still an infant in the terms of the political system in it's this only country, fifteen years old, yeah, yes, whether that has actually lost its way. You know, that's a good question. When you say lost its way, do you mean lost its way toward victory or lost its way towards what 
conservatism means to whatever it means. And I mean, that gets into a bigger issue, which is whether political parties are, are vessels for ideas or vessels for power. Right. And major parties, obviously, they don't get to champion any of their ideas unless they're in power. And the question is, you have to pick and choose your battles. Which ones do you choose? And to be clear, I don't think what we're seeing from Maxime here is all that ideological. I mean, he's picking pretty key issues, and and I'd say very saleable issues to people. And supply management is a great example of that, but also things like immigration. That's going to be one of the ballot issues in next year's election because of how mishandled the immigration file has been from the government now. Well, surely in an election, you can't become a philosopher and, and no. you know, elaborate on all your beliefs and principles. So you have to pick those perfect issues that symbolize those philosophies and those principles. And so I guess that's what every political party does when it chooses the issues it does. And by not going with, you know, or going against the supply management issue and the whole free trade thing, I think the conservatives are revealing themselves to be very much not conservative. And and I have to say, I agree with a lot of Bernier's um, criticisms of the party. Do the parties really change in the long term? I think that they can. I think they have the capacity to. I think that when we're talking about what's happening with the federal conservative party, it was easy to ignore supply management, which was always the elephant in the room for so many years because there was no need to address it. Trump was a disruptor in the U.S. Trump was also a disruptor in Canada because Donald Trump and the trade negotiations and the trade war essentially made it so that supply management had to be put on the table. And it was fine when no one was talking about it. But now Maxine was saying, no, this issue's on the table. We finally have the chance to do something about it. If we're ever going to, it's going to be now. And he put a challenge to the conservative establishment, and they said no. It's interesting that Donald Trump and uh, the renegotiation of NAFTA has just put a, a wrench, a monkey wrench, into Canadian politics, because I don't think that Maxime Bernier would have resigned if it wasn't for the fact that supply management is the stumbling block in negotiations with the United States. Yeah, because even if you don't want to give it up, it's a good one to give up just as a negotiating tactic anyway. So I think that he's understandably frustrated that, look, if there was ever a time to do it, this is the one where this would make all of these other problems go away. And he sees Andrew Scheer and Justin Trudeau standing together. I want to do politics differently. I will find another way to give a voice to millions of Canadians. And I will continue to fight for freedom, responsibility, fairness, and respect. Since losing the leadership, Maxime has repeatedly demonstrated that he is more interested in advancing his personal profile than advancing conservative principles. Max could have had every opportunity to fight the carbon tax or fight for energy infrastructure or to work with me on immigration committee and I've seen neither hide nor hair of him in three years so whatever. They don't want to discuss the real fight. They don't want to discuss what Canadians and conservatives want us to discuss. Now they're throwing mud at me and you know they're desperate and usually it's a, it's a behavior that is coming from a loser. What you saw yesterday is just uh, the most public example of many other uh, not-so-public examples of a party that is broken.
Canadian party? Or are you going to be starting a think tank? Lots of rumors floating around. What's your plan to give those millions of Canadians a voice, as you put it? Yeah, the plan is to um, be able, in the next future, to have a new party that will promote conservative values, that will fight for Canadians who want real change in, that, in this country. So answering your question, I will have some discussion with people all across the country in the next couple of weeks. And uh, the goal is to have a new party that will represent them. Has anybody from within the party given you uh, a sense that they will be following you, that they too will be leaving the Conservative Party? What conversations have you had with other people from your former caucus? First of all, I didn't have any conversation with my uh, former caucus member the last couple of weeks. Uh, the last conversation that I had was with the leader, Andrew Scheer. That was uh, nine days ago. Uh, Tuesday, nine days ago, when uh, before Andrew issued his uh, statement. Uh, <clears throat> and um, so we had a very polite discussion. And after that discussion, I realized that um, I don't have any place in that party anymore. And, uh, you know, uh, after a year, I tried to fight for the conservative who want to have bold reform in Canada, reform in line with what they believe. And um, I was not successful, as you know. I'm the only one in the house who fighting for Canadian consumers on supply management. I'm the only one in the house who is against a trade war with U.S. Um, and so I tried to influence that party, but uh, after a couple of uh, discussion, uh, and uh, I decided that uh, I will be best serve Canadians if uh, we create a new party. I think that the real conservatives want some conservative reforms. At least that's what I hope. I'm in politics to defend ideas, and this is what I'm doing. And I appreciated the leadership race. It gave me a chance to see that many Canadians share my values, the core values of the Conservative Party. And we've managed this leadership race in a record time. Not because my name is Maxime Bernier, but I do promotion of ideas that people want to hear. And I will do it in a new forum. And I think a majority of Conservatives will be more identified with the new party if they want to join. Some people say that you're a bad loser, a sore loser. And it's not a question. It's a question of principle. This party doesn't accept the principles on which I base my values. And this party doesn't represent any more what I want to do, what I feel that I need to debate. When we have ideas, we have to share them with passion and conviction. But it's a question. It's not a question of, of pleasing or not being pleasant. I mean, it's a question of personal responsibilities and personal liberties. And these are ideas at the basis of the Occidental society. And if we only try to do things according to polls in a coded language, well, it's not my style. What Sorry. makes you think that you have a chance, or a better chance, of beating Justin Trudeau than Andrew Scheer? That would be the ideas. People want to change. 
And I think they're ready for that. They want to have a discussion about, uh, yes, supply management. They want to have a discussion about the equalization formula. They want to have a discussion about maybe more private delivery of services in the healthcare. So they want to have a lot of debates. And I'm not afraid to do that. I think it would be good to have this debate. And uh, I'm looking forward to having this debate. And I know that it will be uh, good for this country. More freedom, less government. Uh, it, it's always good. But you can beat him at the leadership. So what makes you think you can do better than him in an election? But for me, it's not a question of a leadership. It's a question of, que it's a question of ideas. That's what I'm doing right now. And, and that's why I'm in politics. What is the goal to be in politics if you don't believe in anything? Just like in the United States, where the Republican Party always seems to be the one on defense, here in Canada, the Conservative Party always seems to eat their young. They always seem to be at each other's throat, while the Liberal Party or the NDP or any left-wing or extreme left-wing party in Canada seem to always rally behind their leader, follow the rule book, and don't make any waves as far as policies and platform go. Now, I, I've recently watched a Jordan B. Peterson clip on why that may be so. And it's because, apparently, the people who are conservative in on the personality scales that Jordan Peterson is, is uh, so fond of talking about, those kinds of people have boundaries. They set boundaries, they put things in boxes, they are always very comfortable with knowing rules and limits, while the left, generally, have no boundaries, no limits, nothing is off limits to them, and so there's no real discussion about policy because they don't care about policy, they just care about power, usually. But conservatives, conservatives are of the mind that we need to know about policy, we need a rule about this, we need... A, a limit on this. And when you disagree on those limits, you're at each other's throats. While, of course, again, to reiterate, on the left, there are no limits, so there's nothing to fight about. What are your th th thoughts on that, Andrew? I would also add another dimension to that, which is individuality. I mean, the conservatives, not as a political party, but just ideological and philosophical conservatives value independent thought a lot more. So it's a lot easier to see schisms emerging from a movement where you have so many different people that are approaching this from, from different areas. One of the other concerns that I would point out is that there is... I find liberalism is a lot more homogenous anyway, and progressivism is a lot more homogenous anyway. How often do you meet someone who's a progressive in one area but not in others? And especially now where you actually have the intersectional people that are forcing out, you know, feminists that aren't pro-trans or, uh, you know, Muslims that aren't, uh, you know, anti-Islamophobia enough. And, and you see this happening where progressivism thrives on that homogeneity. And the challenge is that the conservatives have always been a party that has had the red Tories and the blue Tories, the fiscal conservatives, the social conservatives, the libertarians, the foreign policy types. And it, it has worked in many respects. And, and Stephen Harper, despite the fact that his record was no, not no, Now, when you say work, though, what do you mean by work? Getting well, elected or getting conservative principles placed into power? Because I think I, I'm, I'm they're two different about, things. I'm talking about the cohesion element. Okay. Whereas there was a, an, a respect and an understanding that all of these different groups are part of the party. We're not going to kick out the Michael Chongs. We're not 
going to kick out the Kelly Leeches. We're not going to pick out, kick out the Brad Trost until Brad Trost was kicked out. But that's another issue entirely. But there, there was cohesion there. And the one thing on the left is that the ideology that's forming, especially the NDP, because the liberals are, are a lot more power-focused than ideological. But the NDP is even seeing this in, in some ways over Israel. I mean, you saw the Leap Manifesto from a couple of years back where the NDP was forced to reckon with its radical wing. But here's where the NDP is going to be fascinating to watch in the next federal election. The NDP has had tastes of power now. They had the 2011 election where they became the official opposition under Jack Layton. They had the Ontario election where they were convinced they were going to win and, and then are now official opposition. And I'm convinced that now that the NDP is starting to see itself within spitting distance of victory, they're going to start throwing their own radicals under the bus. They're, the radicals are still going to be in charge, but they're going to start uh, putting that positive, polished face forward in pursuit of being elected. And that's going to be very interesting to watch because I think we are going to actually see some sort of a schism in the NDP when the people that I think recognize and represent the true essence of the party start to turn on the more centrist people or the people that are trying to pull the party more to the center. Let me ask you a question about how Andrew Scheer defeated Maxime Bernier for the leadership of the Canadian Conservative Party. They recently before this leadership election changed the rules of how leaders are elected i understand so that certain ridings are weighted differently based on uh, geogra- uh, geography and uh, makeup uh, it's a it's a form of identity politics brought down to uh, the riding level you're a northerner uh, you're disadvantaged therefore we're going to give you two votes at the convention rather than the one from toronto that's a that is progressivism right there that is identity politics so is it almost impossible as maxime bernier says to change the conservative party from within because they have established rules which defeat uh, their their own raison d'etre of conservatism you know the rules i actually don't think are terrible in practice. And the reason why is because the, the rules are meant to mimic how actual elections work. So if you want to win an election, you have to have broad appeal across the country. You can't just win by, you know, winning all the seats in Alberta or winning all the seats in Quebec. You've got to win some seats in Alberta and Ontario and Quebec and BC. And the riding point system actually forces a leadership candidate to prove that they can have appeal that, that spans the country. But if that was the same case in the United States, Trump would not have won because he did not win California. And 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 that would have been weighted more. Well, isn't that doesn't that speak against that question then? Because that's exactly the argument that if you really went by total majority rule, right, strictly one vote, one person, never mind the jurisdiction mm-hmm. breakdown. But but where where it's important is that let's say it was one member, one vote, and whoever gets the most votes is the leader. You get someone like uh, take a Jason Kenney for example, who's really tied into ethnic communities. He could go into every mosque, synagogue, gurdwara, and temple in the GTA and probably sign up three hundred thousand people, and then he wins the leadership without having to leave a fifty square kilometer area. Or you get a, a French-Canadian guy, like maybe a Maxime Bernier. He signs up everyone in Quebec, 
And then he wins, even though he hasn't demonstrated that he has any appeal or organization outside of Quebec. So I, I think the rules are complicated, but they also are, are there because they understand the strategy required to win a general election. And that's why the rules were there. However, that actually fits into, <clears throat> excuse me, Maxime Bernier's argument that they're out simply to win elections. Mm-hmm. They are not um, a, a conservative party. They are a populist party. But the ranking is, is where things get really tricky because you could have the same geographical distribution while not having the ranked ballot. And I think the ranked ballot is what causes so many problems because Bernier was in first place for nine of 10 rounds of balloting. He had more votes than anyone else and more points than anyone else in round one, in round two, three, four, five. And it was only in that final round where Andrew Scheer got that half a percentage point that he needed of an advantage on Maxime Bernier. Now, the rules are the rules. They were both playing under the same rule book, and that's why Maxime Bernier accepted the results of it. But the the thing is, he had more grassroots support for him than anyone else running, including Andrew Scheer. That's going to be the spoiler, potentially, for the party when Maxime Bernier launches his new party. And if he breaks away, wouldn't a lot of those people choose to go with him? They may. They may well, because Andrew Scheer was one because he was everyone's second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth choice. Maxime Bernier won because he was everyone's first and second choice. Well, that's a big difference. It is. Are people seeing that as manipulation within the party or... or, or? Well, I, to be honest, I think that people inside the party have wrapped their heads around this because this is the only system they've ever used in the Conservative Party of Canada to select a leader. This was the system that elected Stephen Harper as leader. This was the system that uh, was now going to elect or elected Andrew Scheer the leader. This was the system that Doug Ford narrowly uh, won the leadership by. Had there been a first like a one-member, one-vote system, Christine Elliott would have won because mm-hmm. she won the, the popular vote, so to speak. So I think that there there is some confusion there, but I, I also think that for the most part, people in the party are on board with it. Oh, I can, I can understand that. And I, I don't have a problem with any party making up its own rules on how it and conservatives runs do itself like rules, internally. So. <laughs> no, but, but still, it's... You know, a lot of a lot of the public has an opinion that political parties in and of themselves are democratic institutions to which they should all have some kind of unfettered access. Look, I saw this in, in the election when I ran. I was running for a nomination. Yes. And we ran out of runway and the party appointed Doug Ford, the leader of the PC party, appointed a slate of candidates. Mm-hmm. I was in that. Sure. And there were a lot of people that were trying to stir up a stink about it. People that were never members of the party. Well, that's right, yeah. Never intended to be members of the party that were saying, I didn't get a say in who my candidate was. Have you ever in your life had a say in who your candidate was? Yes. And they said, no. I said, well, then what are you complaining about? I, Look, I, I would direct our listeners to go to our YouTube channel and, and listen to you speak for um, almost two hours on this entire issue, amongst a lot of other issues, um, at the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry. And that video has just been posted about a month ago. So have a look at that if you want a more in-depth look at Andrew's opinion about (laughs) the the political situation. Mm -hmm. But the fact remains that you're bang on, Bob. I mean, political parties have an obligation to advance their own interests. And and we see political parties that are subject to hostile takeovers. Mm-hmm. And you have, this is bringing it back to the Bernier thing. Bernier made the charge in, in a book that's going to be published soon that probably sooner now that he's not having to worry about uh, stepping on toes in, in his own party, that a bunch of non-conservatives were signing up for Conservative Party of Canada memberships to vote against Bernier, people in the dairy industry. 
And when you have a system like that where anyone can pay their $10 and get a membership, you can have hostile takeovers. It happened to former Conservative MP Rob Anders out west. A bunch of liberals uh, came together and voted against him in a nomination. It happened to Brad Trost. A bunch of liberals joined uh, up in Saskatchewan University and voted, or Saskatoon University, and voted against him for the, the nomination. So the challenge of this is that a party has to be able to say, no, 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 this is not... You, you are not advancing our party's interests. Right. I just wonder whether that was a strength or a weakness, being allowed to just sell memberships and come in and take over a party. Because one of the things I would caution against is if, you want, if, if your party's there for a long-term purpose, you want to prevent takeovers. Well, and so wouldn't you have some sort of limit on membership that you, that you must be a member, say, for so long before you actually get a vote so that you have a vested interest in a given party? This is one of the biggest challenges, not just in parties, but in entire states right now. Oh, sure. How That's do a generic you question. be a grassroots institution while also, while also accepting that sometimes the way of the people is not the way that represents who you are? And this is true of immigration. Just to, to draw a parallel here. We as a country want to be this open borders place, if you ask the, the liberals and the progressives and, and the prime minister. But you have to accept the consequences of what happens when you don't have any rules and you don't have any uh, sense mm-hmm. of order. And that's where constitutions are so important because the constitution is what protects you against that. And a party's constitution can same do the thing. same thing. Right. Because just imagine NRA, the National Rifle Association, if, you know, 500,000 liberals joined up and disbanded the NRA. The NRA would cease to be the NRA. That's right. The NRA isn't there because of the people that happen to be members. It's there because of the values on which it was founded. And that's true of the Conservative Party of Canada. That's true of the nation of Canada. Another example would be just the the recent um, decision by San Francisco to allow illegals to vote municipally. It's, it's an attempt by, in this particular case, it, obviously it's an attempt by the left to um, out any Republicans in that city or or conservative votes because there were so many in San Francisco until now. <laughs> yeah, but nobody no, they're doubling down. I mean, yes. the left, I'll give this to the left. They never give up. They take every single opportunity to make things go their way, mm-hmm. legal or illegal. Maxim Bernier has left the Conservative Party of Canada, or should I say the pseudo-Conservative Party of Canada, and announced his intentions to start a new party which will actually espouse conservative values. The first thing I'd like to address is all the people whinging about the right being split. First of all, there is no right in this country. There is a center-left party, a left party, and a far-left party, and you could argue that there's actually two far-left parties, but there is no right party in this country. Secondly, the right is already split. It's done. It's written in stone. The only question you have to answer now is what side of the divide do you fall on? Are you an actual conservative who has principles, who is loyal to principles, who is loyal to ideas, who is loyal to values, or are you loyal to a milk toast leader in Andrew Scheer and the party, the pathetic party that he has come to lead? I want to address is my sustaining donor card for the CPC. Apparently I got this because I've uh, gone to EDAs, I've chipped in the pot, I've donated money, I donated money to Max. Um, You know, I was actually getting pretty involved 
And uh, this is this is not going to happen anymore. That's um, that's game over. There's absolutely no way a Conservative Party of Canada that isn't conservative is ever getting another dime of my money. There are very few people in the CPC at the MP level that inspire me and actually make me feel warm and fuzzy about what the Conservative Party represents. And I'm not going to discuss them right now because I want to see what they do. I want to see if they come down on the right side of the fence or they come down on the wrong side of the fence. And they have decisions to make, and I respect that those decisions aren't exactly easy at this stage. But the one person I will discuss is Max Bernier because he is willing to have the difficult conversations. He is willing to represent real conservative values in Canada. And he inspired me to get involved in the party. And now that he's gone, there's there's no real place for me in this party. It's game over. We have to start over. Because this party isn't real. It has become milk toast at best. It has no identity. It has no core value system. It has no principles. You see, Sheer, even in his critiques of the Liberal government, he never says anything real. And when he does criticize them, it's in language that is so ambiguous, it doesn't mean anything. And Max actually said this in his press conference today. Everything the CPC does is poll tested first. They have no value system except for what the public gives them, which means they're chasing liberal voters all over the place. They've completely forgotten the value systems that they're that the constitution of the Conservative Party is supposed to espouse. You're listening to Just Right broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample all of our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. We're in studio with Andrew Lawton. And Andrew, we're talking about the Canadian political scene. One of the big questions, and, and you sort of raised it just before we went to the break there, was, and, and I guess it po- comes down to, should a party be um, leading or following in the sense that doing what the people want? Because sometimes the, what the people want isn't always the best thing for the people. And we've seen many examples of that in history throughout the world. And some of the things that the, quote, people thought they want turned out to be unmitigated disasters. So if a, if a political party wants to establish a new direction, it might not, in fact, be in sync with the people. At what point does a party say that, um, well, we're going to lead because we know that, say, freedom is the right answer, but the public is really in a left-wing frame of mind, and you're never going to win those votes over a position if you're going to constantly appeal to the mood that's already out there instead of trying to change it. That's a delicate balance, I understand, and sometimes it, it, it gets fuzzy when you get down to fine points. What, what would be your overall view on that whole lead or follow? What, what is the role of a political party in that sense? I think they obviously need to lead, but they also need to understand the confines and parameters of the society they're trying to lead. And that doesn't mean following, but it means understanding where the people are. And I'm a big believer in incrementalism. And I think we talked about this when I was on the program last in the sense that 
the way you can accomplish something a lot more long-standing is, I think, by moving the needle, because eventually the culture moves alongside it as well, whereas radical changes force people to really put their backs up against the wall and, and, and actually forces the next government, which will be the different party, to push back and, and start reversing stuff. And here's an example, the sex ed curriculum in Ontario. The former Liberal government put in a fairly radical update to the sex ed curriculum. What happens when the Conservative government gets in? One of the first things they do is to get rid of it. If you push things more incrementally, it becomes harder to undo, which may be a selling point or a drawback, depending on, on your view of government. But I'm just talking about the party's agendas themselves right now. So to go back to the point about the people not knowing what they want, the challenge is that if we start giving a pass to government telling people what they want or telling people what they need, then we give license to a government that is going to be a totalitarian entity. But aren't we there? No, I wasn't even referring. I, I, was, we were there. I was sort of more talking about a government that's willing to persuade its public. Not, oh, not, not, oh, okay. Not, not, not I'm, I'm still talking about a free society. Oh, okay. Here, okay. No, definitely, okay. I agree. No, I think you were talking about, you know, the people say one thing and the no, government no, no, says... No, 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 I'm not talking mind. about... Okay. Oh, no, absolutely. Persuasion is so key, which is why communicating ideas is so important. And this is in that talk at Laurier that Robert mentioned earlier. What I was trying to do is that conservatives need to start communicating rather than apologizing for conservatism. The left will never apologize for their beliefs. That's one of the great things about them as a political movement. They will never apologize for being leftists. Conservatives will apologize for being conservatives all the time. It's been my experience that conservatives are in unable to articulate a reason as to why a particular policy works from a moral perspective. And let's take uh, supply management as an example. Absolutely, supply management is a, is a disastrous economic policy. Absolutely. But it's also immoral. And while I see Maxime Bernier, actually Maxime Bernier does talk about the morality of it, and I'll grant, I'll grant him that. But um, conservatives, by and large, cannot articulate the moral argument of imposing force on society to get a particular agenda across, while the liberals can. The liberals have always taken the moral high ground uh, and actually tell people that, look, conservatives are immoral because they will not let people cross the border with their children, you know, for example. They're all about emotion. They're all about taking that moral high ground of we're doing what is morally correct, conservatives saying we're doing what's efficient. We're doing what's proper. We're doing something that will uh, advance the economy, not for moral reasons, but simply for economic reasons. And I think that's where they're going to, to lose all the time. And getting back to your talk uh, about driving, driving public opinion or following it, Again, I direct people to our YouTube channel where I just posted a video from 2011 of World War II veteran Dick Field, who was a guest on this show before, who just recently passed, where he talks about coming back from where he was fighting over in Europe. And he says, we didn't fight for socialized health care. We didn't fight for welfare. We didn't fight for multiculturalism. We fought for Canadian values. And he said, it began with Pearson. When we came back, Lester B. Pearson started to talk about culture. And he said that was a topic that we actually fought uh, against in Europe. The, uh, the Aryan culture, the German culture, we were fighting against talk about culture. So, yes, it appears that when Pearson was elected and then Trudeau after him, what they did was they set the agenda. They persuaded, to use your word, Andrew, incrementally to change 
Canadian society to where today it is absolutely the inverse of of the society that Dick Field fought to protect. Yeah, and not only are conservatives not able to set out a definition that I think we would all agree on for Canadian values, but even acknowledging the existence of Canadian values right now is deemed to be not correct. Justin Trudeau has said Canada has no culture. Yeah, and the great line that Mark Stein had is that, you know, who what is Canada is defined by whoever's at Terminal B-12 of Pearson Airport at any given moment. I mean, it's it's as fluid <laughs> as the people in it, as though the country itself does not have a fixed identity. Well, I remember back in the 70s when Pierre Trudeau uh, was, was prime minister, most, most people were saying what makes Canada Canada is that we're not Americans. And that's still, not a that's still that's still today. I you could oh, pull yeah. 100 people and that's going to be the case. You're going to get an uh, 80 of or 80 of the 100 are going to say we're not Americans and 19 of the 100 are going to say uh, you know socialized healthcare is what makes us great and then Bob might be the last one that says you know the right answer but you're you're going to have to work <laughs> to find that one in 100. And I think this only happened after World War II when people like Pearson were uh, the Prime Minister and the liberals li- liberals took over and basically said that no Canada doesn't have a culture. When, in fact, they did have a culture that 100,000 people died to protect. I think part of the problem, too, with the quote-unquote failure of conservatives to enunciate their principles is the fact that they do have this division within them. And one side doesn't want to, you know, upset the other side and lose their support. And so they stay away from their issues, right? You've got the social conservatives, the fiscal conservatives, for example. And I recall last time that um, Bill Gardner was on the show with us. He's been a guest a couple times. And I think I might have given him a bit of a rough ride when I (laughs) asked him about the notion of the word conservative, which is no different to me than liberal, because I kind of regard both of those words not as nouns, but as adjectives. (laughs) And I asked him, well, if you're talking about a conservative, a conservative what? A conservative person about freedom? A conservative person about tyranny, a conservative person about something in between, you know what I'm saying? Yes. What is a conservative, what would be the most fundamental of conservative values to the broader conservative coalition? Is there one? <sighs> to the broader, that, yeah, see, it, yeah, you see, I, I thought you were asking one question and then you added the caveat there, yeah, to the broader well, conservative. Well, it's just, what would they all agree on that they could take to the public that they wouldn't infight about. Is that that what I'm asking? The (laughs) most is limited government. Okay. Limited government. If you are if you are a conservative candidate or conservative nomination seeker, you never have to worry about running afoul of the party <laughs> the, the, the party tel- intelligentsia by saying you want limited government. So much so that it's become almost a, a catchphrase that people don't critically analyze, as is true with most political slogans. But but limiting government and and to be honest, Tim Mowen, who's the leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada, I interviewed him on my former radio show a while ago, and I asked him. Basically, because libertarians, you get some that are, are just anarchists. Well, they say, you know, less government, more freedom through less government. I, I don't agree with that. I think you want good government. End of good story. government, yes. But but I, I, the, where I was going with this is that I was asking him to try to suss out, look, are, are you one of these anarchist libertarians? And, and he had a very pragmatic approach that, that has stuck with me. And he said, look, when I'm faced with a, a decision, I say, okay, on which side do we find less government than on the other? 
Now, that, I think, is generally speaking an effective way of getting better government, but it, it isn't something that necessarily equates to better government. I think that the problem with government now is that there's too much of it. So I do think pulling it back is, in most See, cases, going to result in something better, would, but would, no government is not the goal. That's not the end Understood. Game. I would agree that when people, a lot, when they say we want less government, they're really referring to government that is currently being active in areas where it should not mm -hmm. be active. There is, of course, the other side of the equation where the government's not being active, where perhaps it should be more active, mm -hmm. particularly on the justice side of things in terms of establishing all of those limits and yes. constitutional protections. But the so, problem with incrementalism, and, and I realize that I, I defended incrementalism a few minutes ago, but one of the problems is that we also focus on oftentimes these minute details when we need to at least look at the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And spending is one of them. I mean, we'll celebrate a government that, you know, reduces a deficit from $10 billion to $8 billion, and we don't look at debt. You know, we'll celebrate a government that can, you know, drop this program, but then they replace it with another one. And, and conservative parties, liberal parties, NDP parties, they are all parties that are trying to exercise retail politics, and they're trying to get your vote by saying this is what we're going to do for you. And we have an electorate that is far too groomed to want to see that list of what are you going to do for me. And there are fewer and fewer voters, I'd say, with each election cycle that will respond well to a government that says, I'm going to stay out of your way. President Trump right now. Yes, you're right. I, I'm the only one in the House who's against uh, a trade war and the only one in, in the House who's for Canadian consumers. And I, I'm, yeah. With it. I'm not asking you yeah, what right. you do to manage it. But you put supply management on the table. You know, the President Trump is, is saying a lot of things. And, uh, but on supply management, for the last six months, that's the same thing that he's saying on Twitter. And you just have to listen. Put that on the table and abolish it for the good of this country, for the for Canadian consumers. That's the best thing to do. Why? Because maybe that will hurt the party in some the Liberal Party and, and my my old party in some key writings. You know, it is not responsible to have a politic a policy like that. And I'm what I'm saying to the Trudeau government right now, put that on the table, abolish it, do like the other countries like uh, uh, New Zealand and Australia that they did it for, for the good of this country. You know, they're putting at risk 20% of our economy for 19,000 producers on their supply management. I cannot believe that. I cannot believe that. Can you feel involved by Donald Trump? What do you mean? Uh, do you feel that you're starting this new party, he's against supply management, you're against supply management. You keep using the word fake weak. news. Are you, you the new Donald do Trump? Do you feel emboldened by Donald Trump? Do you feel... No, no. I, you know, I have my, my own ideas and I'm not working for the U.S. government. You know, what I'm telling you, it's the best idea for this country and the best ideas for this country is to abolish that system. And I'm pleased that uh, the President Trump uh, is asking for that because the Canadian politician they don't have the courage to do that. The Trudeau government, they're focusing on diversity, diversity and diversity. And I'm not against that. But the goal must be unity in diversity. We, people who came here, they came here to share the Canadian values the rule of law, equality between men and women, uh, 
a respect, a tolerance. And so that's why I receive a lot of support from people from other uh, uh, ethnic group. And they were saying, you're right, we are Canadian. And also we can be from India, we can be from other country, but we're proud to be Canadian. And I think we must focus a little bit more on that. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's very important for me. On the subject of incrementalism, Andrew, I was wondering how that is actually brought into play if you're looking at an issue-by-issue issue basis. Like, for example, if you're talking about supply management, wouldn't it just be cleaner to cut it out entirely rather than incrementally move out of it? Like, is that what you mean by incrementalism when you're talking about maybe they get so much... Uh, uh, so many cents per liter of milk right now, and you're going to only reduce it by 5 or 10% and then slowly phase it out. Is that incrementalism? You raise a, a valid point there. I mean, there are some issues that are, in fact, binary. You either have it or you don't, and you can't moderate mm -hmm. or, or compromise. I, I say supply management is one of those. Okay. Now, I agree. I've <laughs> been a big believer in if we are going to dismantle it, that we should compensate farmers fairly for the quota that we're essentially eliminating from it. And I know there's some dispute about that. Some people argue that, look, their compensation has been all the money they've made off supply management for the last 50 years. Whereas I believe, look, regardless of how flawed the system was and is, they got into it based on the rules functioning in a certain way. And I think that we should buy it back. So the Maxime Bernier plan, I thought was a very valid one, which was to put, and I know this makes me cringe, but put a temporary tax on dairy and poultry projects to cover the $15 billion to buy back quota. And then you eliminate it and you actually build in a detonation clause into the tax. And I'd say that's a fairly not incremental, but it's a fairly measured position because the farmers are saying, look, you're not out any money. The only thing you're out is whatever uh, you're not able to sell in the future. And at the same point, though, you're, you're right, Bob, when you talk about the fact that in some cases it's either a yes or a no. But let's take a look at income tax. I mean, I'm a big believer in a consumption tax. I would love to see only a consumption tax. I agree. I would rather government drop you know, a percentage every couple of years, if I knew we were getting to no income tax, then one day some government coming in and saying, all right, income tax gone, because I know that that would not be long lasting. In Canada, True, we but see even time that time I again. would already call a binary decision because you've already made the choice yes, to move in a yes. given direction. Did it take so long? That's not the issue. Okay, and it's, that's it's, fair. It's the move that's to fair. make it. Um, excellent. Um, the other thing too, oh, Robert, did you have something else? Yeah, just one thing on the incrementalism. It just seems that incrementalism seems to be the way for conservatives to roll back legislation that was implemented by liberals. However, liberals don't necessarily uh, practice incrementalism. And I can give you a few examples. I mean, overnight, we went from um, British imperial system to the metric system. Overnight, we went to uh, official multiculturalism. Of course, that was a progressive conservative who brought that in, and Justin Trude and, and Pierre Trudeau as well. And then overnight, we went to um, official bilingualism. And it's been calculated at the time that we could have had a space shuttle program for the cost of translating every single government <laughs> document into French and English. The rebranding of government to Canada with the little maple leaf down there. The billions of dollars that liberals, with the stroke of a pen, no incrementalism, no phasing out, just overnight, we've gone to these particular... Uh, ways of thinking, the, the repatriation of the Constitution, a good thing, by the way, but adding the Charter of Rights, a bad thing, by the way. All liberal, overnight, not Fabian, but overnight introduction of Canada's going to be this way, like it or leave it, 
right? So why is it that incrementalism only seems to apply to conservatives rolling back things instead of liberals implementing things? Because conservatives are responsible. <laughs> I like that answer. It's good. <laughs> uh, getting back to the whole Bernier thing and him splitting off with another party, which he hasn't named yet or, mm-hmm. you know, or even given us a great idea of what it is. No, and he did the best thing, by the way. He made the announcement on a Thursday, did no interviews on the Friday, and then on Saturday left for a week-long vacation. Smart idea. Yeah, <laughs> Throw I the think, grenade and walk away. Well, and the timing was something else, too, given yeah. that it was right before the, the, convention, the yes. convention. Bernier started to become a little bit more on the radar when he had those tweets about uh, too much diversity of Justin Trudeau. Do you want to speak to that, Andrew? Yes, and I actually wrote a, a column about this on my website, andrewlawton.ca, where I, I talked about their difference between organic, true diversity and contrived manufactured diversity. And I think diversity is a great thing because I think that diversity in Canada comes about when we focus on other things. And and the examples that I gave in the piece were when we have a country that preserves religious freedom, we have people from all different belief systems. When we have a country that provides economic opportunity, we have people coming from countries where those opportunities don't exist. When we have core values and and a core identity, which I I think we do, it's become a little bit more difficult to discern, we have people that want that, people that want to embrace Canada. And in many respects, immigrant communities understand this better than white secular liberal Canadians do, because they've come to Canada for a reason, because of what it is that we're offering. And that is an organic diversity that I think is very positive. Justin Trudeau wants diversity for the sake of diversity. I want diversity that comes about because people value freedom, liberty, pluralism, all of these different ideals. And it's funny, after I wrote the piece, I did an interview with a a, a French-language CBC reporter about it, which hasn't come out yet. And I was making this point, and and the reporter honestly had no idea. It's like, I I don't get, like, it kept saying, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand what you're saying. And I pride myself on being able to articulate a point somewhat well. So tell me, gentlemen, if I'm off base here, but people don't understand that idea of contrived and manufactured diversity. They think diversity itself, it's been groomed into everyone, certainly a CBC reporter apparently who was a very nice guy and I believe that he was trying to understand. And I we'll, think We'll see what the story looks like, but Justin Trudeau who holds up diversity as the trump card, diversity he would take above liberty, above freedom of speech, above all of those things. I think the, the confusion comes for many um, who have been drinking the liberal Kool-Aid is that diversity to them means race and religion, mm-hmm. skin color. While Maxime Bernier was very explicit in saying that when he's talking about diversity, it has nothing to do with those aspects, those superficial aspects of a person. It has to do with culture. In other words, the set of ideas that that person holds regarding things like justice and individualism, those are the kinds of diverse elements Um, If they're against those uh, particular elements, um, individualism, uh, capitalism, justice, um, we don't want diversity in that. You cannot dirty good ideas with bad ideas. And Justin Trudeau even gets that. This is the weirdest part Justin Trudeau is deliberately importing into this country ideologies, not skin color, ideologies and cultures that are set to destroy Canada because, as he said, Canada has no culture. But where I'm thinking this is important is that Justin Trudeau knows 
the importance of, of clamping down on that because we saw that with the Canada Summer Jobs Program, where Justin Trudeau says, no, 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 there is no diversity of thought allowed on abortion issues if you want federal funding. So he, he believes what you're saying, but he only wants to apply it on his terms and in his court. He's okay with people that perhaps believe a, a non-politically correct version of abortion or gay marriage if they are ethnically or religiously diverse. You That's know, the most bizarre th- This part comes back to the, to the epistemology of it, doesn't it? Is, is diversity another adjective? Diverse <laughs> what? Exactly. Right. You have to define yeah. your terms, and, yes. and diversity is not cutting it. Diversity, what do you mean by that? Skin color, religion, race, country of origin, your, your um, beliefs on justice and individualism. Are, are you a socialist or a capitalist? You know, Dick Field was right in that you know, recap that we had online there talking about how just years ago nobody talked about culture or race or you didn't concern yourself with other issues like that. I recall mentioning even um, on Left, Right and Center with Jim Chapman. I I told Jim one day, I said, you know, I was brought up not to look at another person's race, not even to mention it or bring it up in any, you know, context. And and I said, today you can't do that anymore. It's, they demand that you understand their race. They demand that you know their background and things like that. And it places an, an, an undue obligation on people to have to react to things. It's not part of their own culture, not even part of their own history. So you've got white, white folks emigrating from Europe over here who are being held responsible for some sort of imagined black slavery 300 years ago in the United States. And, and, and a complete, com, you know, just, just a complete confusion about culture, race, the background, the history, and ultimately what a country is about. And, and that, that, I think, is, I think diversity in the way the liberals have been using it has been a vote-buying mechanism and a, a means of destroying the British heritage of the country, which came down from Magna Carta, which, of course, has a long-standing conflict between the French and the English, and, and Europe has been under these same kind of conflicts between all the nations in Europe. And uh, I, I don't know how we're ever going to end that until we move in what we would call the right direction towards the freedom that everybody thought they were fighting for in the last war. I can't add to that. I think that was perfect. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, and uh, Dick Field perhaps treaded into dangerous territory when he talked about this in his presentation to the International Free Press Society, which is on our YouTube channel. He said that if you look at the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which, by the way, is is not a British tradition having a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It comes through 700 years of jurisprudence, not through a dictate. By the way, just to interject there, George Jonas's great line was that when you write down your freedoms, you lose them. And that was what the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, I think. Yeah, the United States got it right because they have an actual um, amendment in there saying um, just because we enumerated these rights doesn't mean that you don't have others. Yes, yes. You know, the United States handled it well. We did not. But anyway, Dick Field was talking about who signed the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Three Frenchmen, particularly three Frenchmen who are friends who came from Montreal and had a particular, um, yeah, André Ouellette, uh, Jean Chrétien, and uh, Pierre Trudeau, uh, other than, of course, uh, the Queen herself. Those three signatures appear, not on the Charter, but on the um, repatriation of the Constitution and then, of course, subsequently the Charter, because they were imposing this Charter on Canada. They were uh, imposing this sort of French method of limiting your rights 
rather than the British method of you're free to do whatever you want except for these things, right? In other words, limit the actions of government rather than limit the actions of people. So our culture has gone within a single lifetime from having a very strong culture that we could define, as a matter of fact, was ingrained in us to the point where now you have the prime minister of the country calling an elderly lady in Quebec intolerant for simply asking about how are we going to fund illegal immigration into this country. He Not called just her basically intolerant, a, racist. He used the word racist. Racist, intolerant, and then had the RCMP arrest her. Amazing. So that's quite, in one lifetime, we've gone from that to this. It's just, it, it, it's, it just makes me want to shake my head. Yep. A lot of people are shaking their head. Any final words, Andrew? I agree with everything Robert said. Okay. On well, that note. We'll, we'll let it go on that. <laughs> and that, that extends for the rest of time, just so you know, Robert. <laughs> use it wisely. <laughs> well, whether Maxime Bernier's um, move now will become an obstacle or an opportunity to move in the right direction remains to be seen. But for us, of course, we will continue to move in the right direction next week, so be sure to join us again then. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright <laughs> The election was so close that at the inauguration they let Humphrey put two fingers on the Bible. <laughs>